Okay, well, let me draw your attention to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to be reading, starting with verse 4, and then we will go down through verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> Pardon me. Every single week. And of course, his wife, you know, she would just look at him with her hands on her hips with this kind of like, mm, you know, expression like, are you really that dumb? But she would show some patience. But at the end, the problem, whatever it might have been, was always resolved. And so often it ended with Ralph giving his wife a big hug and saying, baby, you're the greatest. You know, it, it just always ended on a happy, comfortable note. Don't you miss that type of a thing? Or what about, you know, one of the real popular westerns that came out uh, was The Rifleman with Chuck Connors. <clears throat> and, you know, here he was. He was a, a, a widower trying to raise a, a young boy. And, of course, there was always some bad guys that he had to deal with. But at the end of the show, there was usually a life lesson that was taught, one of those things that would kind of give you this warm, fuzzy feeling. A lot of those old shows would give us a sense of peace at the end. It's something that you liked. But I don't know what has happened, but we don't have a whole lot of shows like that anymore. You know, I mean, you know, several years ago, there was a thing called Desperate Housewives, and I'm not knocking Dr. Phil, but I mean, I don't want to watch that show, because all they're going to do is gripe and whine and complain and yell and scream at each other. Or what about this other one? And I've never watched it, because it doesn't look like it's any fun to me. Was it The Bachelor Ed or something? And any time they advertise it, it shows some woman crying. Well, you know, I don't want to watch that. You know, I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, is this the best that we can do, that we entertain ourselves with things that rob us of our peace? Can we have peace in our time, though? Because so many times we look around at the world that's around us, and it doesn't seem very peaceful, but we can have peace, and we can have an inner peace that will rise above all the things that we see in this life. And the letter to the Philippians deals with this. We're going to read in here really two promises of peace. And, you know, the letter to the Philippians has a lot of things that, that are in there. If you want to read through it sometime, you can just picking out promises that you can find in there. <clears throat> you know, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You can find all these little promises in Philippians. And this, is, this passage that we're going to read really has two promises of peace in there. So let me read this to you where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now let's think a little bit about this, about this, this promise of peace and, and, and what leads up to it. 
And first of all, we would have to say this, is in order to enjoy this peace that we can have with God, we have to be the type of a person who's willing to rejoice. You know, the word joy and rejoice occurs in the letter to the Philippians, according to my count, it occurs in the letter to the Philippians, these two words, 16 times. I mean, and Philippians is not what you would call a long letter. It really isn't. And so this theme of joy runs throughout this whole thing. And, and you cannot, and one of the things we can learn from that is you cannot appreciate the letter to the Philippians unless you want to rejoice. You cannot appreciate the things that are in there for us unless you want to rejoice. And it says to rejoice always, meaning you rejoice when the times are hard and you rejoice whenever things aren't fair and that things are not good and you get bad news. You know, you remember the story about Paul and Silas whenever they first went to Philippi. You know, what happened? They weren't there too long before they ended up getting thrown in the hoose gal. And there they were, chained up inside of a jail cell. And what did they do? Well, I'll tell you what. They didn't moan and groan. They didn't fire off letters to their congressman or do anything like that. What did they do? They were in there one night singing. Singing praises to God and rejoicing simply because of all that God is. Matter of fact, it shook up the whole place from what I understand. But anyway, but if anybody had a, had a legitimate beef about being treated unfairly, he and Silas did. But instead of griping and complaining, what did they do? They rejoiced because they knew that they had someone to rejoice in, and that was God. You know, you might say, well, it didn't seem like that they were... Uh, rejoicing all the time because it seemed like that they, uh, you know, well, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. <laughs> I was getting ahead of myself. Anyway, what you have to do to rejoice, though, is you have to make a decision that you're going to quit griping, quit whining, and keep, quit complaining about everything. You know, whenever we are the type of a person that's a chronic griper and a chronic complainer, it shows that our attitude is one of selfishness. Now, I'm sure that no one here is that way, but I'm sure that everyone here has known someone that is just a chronic complainer. I know I mentioned this before, and I mentioned it early this morning. It was, you know, at one church where I served, you know, there was a lady that just griped all the time. I never heard her say one thankful word in all the time I was her pastor. And it got to where I just didn't want to stop and talk to her, you know. And what I would do is whenever I'd see her on Sunday morning, instead of going up and saying, how are you doing, Mrs. Crabapple, you know, I didn't do that. I, I would just see her, and I would kind of quicken my pace as I was drawing near to her, and I'd pat her on the shoulder and say, good to see you. And I would just keep going as fast as I could, because I didn't want to hear about it. Because that was just, that was all that she did. Listen, this is the, complaining is, shows the attitude of selfishness. And peace with God is never found in selfishness. It never is. So, this is one of the things that we have to do, is we have to say that we are going to quit complaining and we're going to find something to, to, uh, to praise God about. Rejoice always. Rejoice no matter what's going on around you. Refuse to get even is another one. Another step in knowing this peace with God. And uh, depending upon what version of the Bible you're using, if in verse 5, if you have a King James Version, it will say, let your moderation be known. 
Your, to us today, the term moderation has more to do with being moderate in our appetites. In other words, we're, we, we don't overeat or we don't drink too much coffee. You know, they'll say, you know, I'm a moderate coffee drinker and things like that. And, and, and that's fine, but the word is kind of taken on a little bit of a different tone today. And <clears throat> some of your other Bibles will tell you that to translate it gentleness. That's how it is translated in the New International Version. It's also translated that way in the New Revised Standard Version. If you have a New American Standard Bible, I think it's translated... Uh, hmm? That's how they do it now in the New American Standard? Oh. They changed it. <laughs> they did. Well, in an older edition of it, uh, it had uh, something kind of like, uh, well, I can't even remember now. It got me thrown off track. But uh, it, it had to do with your, oh, let your forbearing spirit be known to all. The idea behind it, I think, for us today is this, is to have this humble mind submit to injustice and, it mis and submit to mistreatment without hate and without the desire to get even. We're all going to be cheated at some time or another. We're all going to be wronged at some time or another. But folks, we are not going to be able to do that. And uh, we're, I'm sorry I'm getting everything mixed up this morning. My words just don't want to come out right. But what we have to do is if we want to know this peace of God, the thing that we have to do in doing that is that we have to quit worrying about how many people have wronged us. You cannot seek to get revenge and know the peace of God. You just can't do that. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> now, another thing that we see here is to remember God's nearness. And it says to, that the Lord is at hand. And, uh, and in this passage here where it talks about the Lord is at hand, uh, some people have, that's at the end of verse 5, some people have different ideas on this. Some people are saying, well, you know, the Apostle Paul was thinking that the Jesus was going to come back real soon and that maybe he just got his wires crossed on something. Well, understand this. There's really, you can put it this way. The Lord's coming is always near. Always near. And the, the reason that it is, even though it has been near for 2,000 years, is this, is we do not know when Jesus is going to come back. We just know that he is. And because of that, his coming is always at hand. It was kind of like a place where I worked whenever I was in college. We had a boss there that he would come back in the shipping department every now and then, and he was always sneaking around. But he would come sneaking in there. And the thing is, is that we knew he was going to do that. We just didn't know when it was going to happen. So if we didn't have anything to do, instead of standing there with our hands in our pockets, we would always kind of get a pallet dolly and we would just go be pushing it around in the warehouse just in case he happened to show up because we needed to look like we were busy. But, the, but what we know is this, is we don't know when Christ is going to come back. That should affect the way that we live today. But here's another idea that's involved in it, <clears throat> is that God is always near. Okay, in, in that sense. And God is the one who is going to right all the wrongs that have been done against you. That is part of trusting in God. That's part of relying upon Him. God is always near to the brokenhearted. And Psalm 145 verse 18, it says that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him. 
when we really believe in the nearness of God, we're also going to be believing that God is going to listen to all the prayers that we offer up to Him. He is always near to us. And so whenever we remember God's nearness, and when we remember that someday His Son is going to come back, we can have a peace of mind that is going to pass all understanding. Whenever we, and the next thing we need to do is we, have, we need to replace worry with faith. Worry always reveals a lack of faith. You don't worry a lot and have faith in God at the same time. Understand this, whenever you're worrying, we rarely ever uh, see the things happen that we're going, we worry about happening, do we? I mean, really. Somebody will call, so, well, you know, oh, I wish you would pray for me. I've got to go in and have some tests from the doctor. The doctor wants to run tests on me. I wish you'd pray for me. I'm just so scared that it's going to be blah, 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 blah. And they don't even know what the tests are going to reveal because the tests haven't even been taken yet, but they're already scared about it. And this is a thing that I tell them. I, you know, I reach down into my store of infinite wisdom and I say, well, listen, don't worry about anything until you've got something to worry about. Now, if you go to the doctor and he tells you your test, is, test reveal that you're going to die in the next 24 hours, well, it's too late to start worrying then anyway, you know. But honestly, our imagination can conceive of a world that is out of control. Our imagination does not conceive of a world that's under God's control. This is where we find peace in God. We just, we're going to replace worry with faith. We're going to trust Him on this. Prayer is... <clears throat> And another thing is, is that we should pray in all, that we should, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry folks, I don't know why my mind didn't want to work right this morning. Anyway, but prayer is a thing that indicates faith. It was said, worry reveals a lack of faith. Prayer indicates faith. Understand this, this is a thing that an old British preacher once said. He said, true prayer and anxious care cannot coexist. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Then we see that we should pray in all kind of situations. No matter what the situation is, lift it up to God in prayer. And so many times we're, we're, we're eager to pray whenever there's a terrible crisis. Sometimes we don't pray that much when nothing much seems to be going on. You remember the 9-11 thing whenever the World Trade Center was attacked and destroyed. And that was a thing that kind of rattled our cages, didn't it? And the churches began to fill up with people praying. I remember the first, first Methodist church in Mount Enterprise just announced they were opening their doors one day for anybody that wanted to come and pray. I went over there and prayed. The pastor at Calvary Temple Church, I saw him in there. We prayed together. There was lots of people in there praying. Why? We had a crisis going on. Now, it didn't take long, though, for all that excitement and prayer to kind of wear out. And if you were to get up on any Sunday morning and say, hey, you know, we're still having prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We'd love for you to come. And, you know, and you'll have about three people show up because nothing's going wrong. But I guarantee if we ever had another crisis, we'd have a lot of people show up. Understand that prayer is something that we do whenever things are going wrong, but it ought to be something that we should do when things are going right. We should pray in all situations. That is what our passage tells us to do. Another thing is, is that prayer is one of those things that should never be forced or formal. It ought to be natural. 
And there's some people who say, well, I just don't know how to pray pretty prayers. Well, you don't need to pray pretty prayers. You know, God isn't ex really that, you know, impressed with our oratory genius or anything whenever we're praying to him. Just talk to him. Tell him what's on your mind. Let me tell you something. There's things that we may want to hide from God, but listen, God isn't shocked by anything that we've done because he already knows what we've done. We should just be open and honest with God. Let your requests be made known unto God. And those requests should be accompanied with thanksgiving. True faith is always marked by a recognition of grace. Faith and grace always go together in the Bible. You remember the story about the Samaritan lepers, or the, the lepers that Jesus healed, you know, on the way to, uh, well, he was going down uh, toward Jerusalem. Anyway, but he, he was there on the Samaritan border, and he saw these lepers that cried out to him, and he, he healed them. But the way he did it was he just told them, he said, you just go on to the priest and show, show yourself to him. On the way, they were healed. Did any of them come back and thank him? One did. Just one. And Jesus said, you know, you know, where are the other nine? I killed ten people. Where are the other nine? Is there no one to come back and give thanks except this one Samaritan here? And then he told him, he told him, he said, you go in peace. <clears throat> and then he said, your faith has made you well. It's his faith. In other words, he understood this idea about grace, and, he and, and faith is something that does that. You know, when we express our thanks to God, what we're doing is this, is we're recognizing that the things that we enjoy are not necessarily things that we deserve, and the things that we enjoy are not some forgettable fluke that we enjoy. Then, when the next thing we do about replacing worry with faith, then we want to reflect on the proper things. It's so easy for us to look at, look at life in the wrong way and look at life in a skewed way. It's so easy for us to reflect on how we've been disrespected. It's easy for us to reflect on how we've been treated unfairly. It's easy for us to harbor impure thoughts. It's, it's easy for us to harbor hateful thoughts. When we do that, we don't find peace. Meditation on godliness is something that produces peace. There was another British preacher that said this. He said, what we read in verse 8, where it tells us, you know, that <clears throat> whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, and so on and so forth, he said, you think on these things. And he said, the command in verse 8 runs directly counter to the habits of mind instilled by modern media today. He said, read the, read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything untrue, anything unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. That's what you're fed today. And no, none of that brings us peace. It should come to us as no surprise that we live in a society that knows very little of peace of inner peace or outer peace, either one. And so what we ought to do is meditate on godliness. Meditate on the things that are good and pure and holy and venerable and honorable. And whenever we do that, we're going to go a long ways toward knowing a certain type of peace. 
And then we need to respect and recognize proper examples. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. <clears throat> we talked about this not too long ago. It's where the Apostle Paul said, you know, he tells the people at Philippi, at Philippi, he said, you know, you do what I do, you know, copy me. And we might think that that is an arrogant thing to say, but number one, uh, this was not uncommon at all back then with teachers. They would tell their pupils or their disciples, this is what I'm talking about, you watch my example, you do this. Another thing about it is this, is that that type of a person that says, you know, I want to be an example to other people, you don't do that with a, pri a proud spirit about you. It takes humility to say, I want to be the right kind of an example. Another reason that this is something that there's nothing arrogant about it is this. Is these, how many Bibles did these people in Philippi have? Did any of them have a New Testament? Nope. You know, they couldn't go to a hotel room and find a Gideon's New Testament anywhere because it hadn't been written and put together yet. The Apostle Paul was basically saying, I'm your New Testament. You watch what I'm doing. You follow me. And the thing is, is that we ought to do the same type of thing. And we ought to seek out those who will be the right type of an example for us. I know that there was one of my old friends that he was pastor, a former pastor. I got to be his pastor <clears throat> as we get close to the end of his life. He was a kind of a loud voice. He used to be a preacher. Uh, loud he was about as blunt as the end of a broom handle, too. He really didn't know how to beat around the bush about anything. I had been told by some people that knew him. They said that before he was converted, he was one of the meanest men in Orange County. His son told me at the funeral, he said, Daddy wasn't just mean. He said, Daddy was evil. He said every type of vice and corruption and sin you can think of, he did, did it and did most of it twice. Said he was just a rough man. And God saved him, and God did some amazing things when he did save him. But old brother Myers, he, like I said, he was blunt. And he didn't really know how to beat around the bush much about anything. But we became really close. And uh, I loved him dearly, and he felt the same way about me. He also had enough health problems to kill three or four people. But like I said, he was tough. But he taught me things, and the things that he taught me, I guess it was just before he died. One time he was in ICU, and they said this was the last roundup for him. I went to see him, and we talked a little bit, and we prayed together. And we parted with the words that we had said so often to each other. I said, I love you, old buddy. And he said, well, I love you too. And he said, it's going to be all right. And I said, yeah. And it was. He got well, and he walked out of the hospital again. But then after I'd moved up here, I got a call. And once again, they said, Brother Myers is in the hospital again. And they've already taken him out of ICU because there's nothing they can do for him. And this is the end. I called him up. And we ended the conversation in the same way. I love you, old buddy. He said, I love you, too. And it's going to be all right. His tone was different. I knew what he meant then. I really did. And the thing that impressed me was this, was that 
you know, here was a guy that was a Bronze Star recipient. You know, he had caught a lot of shrapnel and probably some other things in him whenever he was carrying a wounded soldier across the Rhine River. He was a man that was fearless in a lot of ways, and uh, he was an example in a lot of ways to some people. But, you know, <clears throat> the thing about him was, was that he, uh, he was not afraid of dying. And he realized that, and it rubbed off. It, you began to understand things about him, and he became an example of saying, you know, I would like to have that kind of courage, but a courage that comes from God. We find people like that. I knew another man, and I got to be his pastor. His name was Richard Sturdivant. You know, Richard was an interesting person. He was one of these guys that was kind of like a Renaissance man. He just knew how to do so many things with his hands. Uh, he had a, a, a business. Whenever I met him, it was a, a plastic vacuum forming thing where he could make anything out of plastic. And uh, at one time, his business was booming, making bed liners for pickups. And then he said, my business has fallen off to just about nothing. He said, there are some of these places that are using a different type of plastic. And he said, they're selling their products for less than what I can buy the plastic for. But you know what? He didn't gripe. Then, then one night, his business caught on fire. And it burned down to the ground. And the only thing that was salvaged was a screwdriver that he forgot to take out of his pocket when he went home that afternoon. Once again, he didn't gripe. And then... He had an old motorcycle, and he got it to run it, and then he decided he was going to take it out on a test run. He went out down a county road, and this big black dog ran out, and he tried to swerve and miss it. And he missed the dog, but he sure didn't miss the ground. And he ended up breaking his leg, I think. No, he ended up getting a pretty bad concussion. They had him in the hospital. Then the next thing you know, after he got over that, then he did something else, and I'm trying to figure out what it was now, but it was, oh, yeah. He was trying to cross the highway in his van, and he didn't see this one car coming, and he ran out from this car, and it ran into his van, and once again, he ended up in the hospital. But in all of that, I never heard him complain about a thing. He was just thankful for what he had. And then the last time I saw him, it was years later, and it wasn't that many years ago, we had gone back down to that town for a funeral. And I saw Richard... And I went up to him and shook his hand, and he looked at me like he had never seen me before in his life. Someone told me a little bit later, well, Richard has the early signs of Alzheimer's disease. After the funeral was over with, we all gathered at a house. Richard sees me, and then he realizes that what he had done. He said, I want to apologize for not recognizing you. He said, I've got dementia. <laughs> He said, but you know what? I know who my wife is. And I've got someone to drive me around and take me home. I've got a house that I live in. And I've got a lot. And once again, he wasn't grappling. You know, I think he knew the peace of God that passes understanding. Richard's a guy that really loved the Lord. He really did. Our passage tells us that there is a peace 
which does pass understanding. It is a peace that cannot be explained apart from God. It is a peace that shows up that makes everybody else think you're crazy because you have it. But it is a peace that passes understanding. And it will guard and protect your minds. And it is a peace that will stay with us. And the peace of God will be with you. Do you have that peace? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And the first step in finding that peace is not really just what we said already. But it's a little thing, a little verse that we find at the first part of the chapter of 5 of Romans. Where it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, before we can have this peace that comes through rejoicing, before we can have this peace that causes us to refuse to get even, before we can have this peace that remembers God's nearness, that does away with worry, this peace that we find by reflecting on proper things, before we can do all of that, we have to be on peaceful terms with God before we know this peace in our heart. And the only way that that can be done is for us to be right with God. Because by nature, we're not right with God. We come into this world guilty sinners. And there's only one way that we can be made right with Him. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead to pay the just price for the sins that we've committed. And whenever we put our faith in Him... We find peace with God. And that peace begins right here. Do you know that peace? I know that many of you do. Most of you do. Maybe all of you do. I hope that you do. But if you don't, the time to be right with God, the time to find peace is now. You know, why go through life and be at odds with God? Because as long as you're at odds with God, you'll never find the peace that passeth understanding. Let's pray together. <clears throat> now, our Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the peace that you offer us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can come to you with confidence because of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we've worried, the times that we've been angry, the times that we've wanted to get even with people. Lord, show us that the way of the world is just not the right way and that it leads us down a path of disappointment and not peace. Now, Lord, go with us this week. We don't know the things that we are going to be facing as this week goes along. We don't know the people that we'll be dealing with. We don't know the situations that lie ahead of us. But, Lord, we... We need to be reminded not to worry about the things we don't know. And that we ought to rejoice in you, the one we do know. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.